On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about bullying. It is something that has become a huge discussion point in recent years. But you would think that it would be getting better, right? We're all talking about it. We're all paying attention to it. Except the numbers say it's getting worse. We're going to talk to a local expert on this about what we can do. Also, Jeopardy. Have you seen Jeopardy lately? The guy who's on there obliterating everybody? We're going to take you behind the scenes a little bit. Two locals, one who you know well, one who you may know, who have both been on Jeopardy, talk to us about how difficult it is to do what this current champion who is breaking the game is doing. Take a listen. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We hear a lot about bullying these days, and I'm not really sure why we do. And we're going to talk about this because you would think that as we have evolved into these better people with more understanding for each other and more compassion and we're much more everything that we're supposed to be, that this is one of those issues that would just go away, you would think. If you're going to be nicer to everyone, if you're going to be tolerant of everyone, if you're going to be compassionate to everybody, bullying to me would be one of the very first things that would fall away and yet not so much. Kathleen Hilchey is an anti-bullying and harassment specialist from around here. Uh, She is holding an anti-bullying workshop in Dundas on May the 9th. We wanted to get her on before then. She joins you now. Kathleen, thanks for doing this today. Hey, you're welcome, Scott. Uh, We didn't have you, and when I say you, I mean someone who does what you do in the 60s or 70s or 80s, did we? Uh, Well, I'm, I'm sure there were some people around. But not, my point basically is I don't remember the t- discussion of bullying, the issue of bullying being anywhere near as front and center as it is now. And now that may be just because we talk about it or it could be because there's more of it now. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's both. I think it's both. I think the online world has uh, made mm. bullying kind of easier to do more behind adults' backs. Um, But I also think that we're focused on it more. There's a lot more research on it. And so we're able to kind of understand the the impact that it has on young people. I mean, it's a a crazy example. The word autism just popped into my head because, I mean, autism, we have a lot more of it now. I don't know if it's because it's a medical condition or because we just understand what it is and can diagnose it better. It makes me wonder if that's the case here, that we're just talking about bullying a lot more and therefore we think it is around a lot more. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting when I do workshops with adults, so I'll often talk about, I'll do a workshop about kids, and many adults in the audience or teachers in the audience come up and say, you know, this really resonated with me, it happened to me when I was a kid, and there wasn't anyone to turn to. So I, I do think that you're right, I mean, there, it probably is increasing a little bit, but I think also we're just talking about it and focusing on it now. All right, what about those adults? Because there's a lot of people, and I guarantee you there are people listening right now who would say, yeah, you know what, I, I dealt with some bullying when I was a kid, and you know what, I dealt with it, I got on with my life, I moved along, I eventually sloughed it off, and away we went. And I'm today, you would never say that to a kid, but that's what I think a lot of people's answer would be. Yeah, and I think that for some people, that is the outcome. Um, but for a lot of people, so one of the things I do in my workshop is I talk about the fact that every... Um, victim of bullying feels shame. So the, the feeling of shame is like there's something wrong inside of me. And that's the feeling that we get when we get assaulted. And I think that bullying is akin to assault. Um, and a lot of those adults, when I bring up the shame piece, so I have a slide that talks about shame and says, 
you know, if we don't handle these situations, if we don't face them, if we don't talk about them, we hold that shame through life. Um, and it leads some adults to tears. And they say, you know what, I didn't even realize I am holding on to this. I do feel ashamed still. And what can I do about it? What about the idea? And, and I mean, some of the stuff we're going to talk about over the next few minutes is probably politically incorrect, but that's why we're here to be, be able to talk about <laughs> right, these things. Right. What about the idea that some people would have, and I think they would truly believe that would say, you know what, it's not going to hurt you to deal with a little bit of stuff and to toughen up. That's good for you that you get to toughen up and get to be ready to deal with life that you're going to have down the road. Yeah. And so this is the crux of what I teach people. It's not that it happened because bad things happen all the time. It's how we deal with it. And what we know is that when kids or teens or even adults, because we know bullying happens with adults, people that have the, that, that have the capacity to use their strong voice. The strong voice is not aggressive. It's not rude. Basically just says like, no, I'm not into this. People who can speak back to people who are trying to bully in that way are much less likely to get bullied. And so both of the programming that I do, both for students who bully and students who get bullied, I work on finding their strong voice. And magically, once they do, the cycles of bullying end. What about, uh, we all heard about tattletales when we were kids. What about people who use a strong voice to go tell an adult? Does that help or does that make it worse? Because once upon a time, that would have been seen as something that would make it worse. Yeah, and I think it all depends on how the adult deals with it. So... Uh, you know, we would be very hard-pressed to find an adult in the school system who didn't actually want to help a kid who was getting hurt. But there are some actions that make bullying worse. Like? And, well, it all depends on the specific situation and the power dynamics. So it can be anything. And what I advocate for and what I'm going to advocate for in this workshop is that we actually listen to the student who's being bullied because they're actually the expert in the situation. And surprisingly, they have the answer. So if we can sit back as the adults and really find out what this student thinks needs to happen to solve the problem, and we do those things, most often the bullying is over. Because, you know, it's become more difficult, and you alluded to it right off the top when you mentioned social media. There would have been a time back, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm older than you, and so when I was in school, maybe when you were in school, that if you went to a teacher or someone and you said, hey, so-and-so is bothering me, you could have some expectation that around that school, during your school day, that wasn't going to happen because that person knew eyes were on them. But with social media now, they can go to their computer, they can go to their whatever, and they can be harassing that kid when they go home. There's no sanctity anymore when you leave the property of the school ground. Right. I, I really call the, the internet the Wild West. There's, there are very few limitations. And I think depending on the family that you live in and also the school that you go to, there are some schools that will deal with bullying instances online at the school the next day because the, the conflict is coming back to school. Um, but it's also so hard to track because so many things are going on. So I, the nice thing about online is that there's evidence, right? The person is right there and what they said is right there. And what I think we need to do is to be developing some monitoring and some limits for kids that schools can follow through on in a way that's not that's not going to bog them down um, because the evidence is totally there for them to be caught, but then also taught how to deal with people in a more positive way when they're in conflict. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
Talking with Kathleen Hilchey, a local anti-bullying and harassment specialist. She has a workshop, an anti-bullying workshop in Dundas on May 9th. If you're interested, I'll give you her website before we're done. But Kathleen, we're talking about bullying, and I was looking online today about this. Bullying Canada, there's a website called Bullying Canada, says right now there are 76,000 known cases of bullying every year in this country, which seems very high. Uh, The National Bullying Prevention Center, that's an American organization, says one in five students are bullied. Both of those numbers seem to me to be impossibly high. Do you buy those numbers? Yeah, I do, unfortunately. Isn't that sad? But I, I, you know, I was a teacher for 10 years, and in that time, I mean, the instances are, it's constant. It's a constant social norm to pick on someone. I mean, our, our kids are just trying to figure out who they are and how to get power. Um, and if we don't jump in as adults and teach them how to solve problems in a, in a concrete way, then things can really go sideways. So again, getting back to the thing we started with, is it really getting worse or not only the reporting of it more, is what we define as bullying changing so that it's more of a, so we capture more things in the context of bullying? Yeah, I mean, different people have different um, definitions of what bullying is. My focus is that there's somebody who's got some social power and they're hurting someone with less social power and they're doing it repeatedly. Um, See, I think that's an important part. Sorry to jump in, but when you say repeatedly, because I've seen numerous cases where we've seen stories, not numerous, a number recently, where someone has been critical and the word bullying gets thrown out. And I say, no, no, that's not, there's a, there's got to be a difference between criticism and bullying. Yeah. And I, but I also think we need to be clear. There's a difference between bullying and harassment. So a harassment situation can look very similar to bullying, but it, it, it can happen just once. And those things are also very serious and have to be dealt with. But, you know, I, I also kind of agree with you that to call it bullying, it needs to be repetitive. Well, we also, I, I do believe, feel free to disagree if you want, but I do believe that we have to be able to distinguish what is criticism because sometimes, I, not just now, but maybe now more than ever in the last couple of generations, we seem to have inoculated our kids against having to face criticism. And then when you get it, it's like, well, I don't know how to deal with this. Yeah, yeah. And but also we need to think about like, is that criticism constructive? Are we trying to help someone or are we trying to bring someone down? So there are different forms of criticism, too, that might lead someone to do better or lead someone to do worse. That said, and and look, as I said a a few moments ago, some of these things, uh, maybe people don't like to talk about it like this. I want to get it all out. And you're the perfect person to do this with. You mentioned about kids. Kids are kids. Kids have always said things and done things that are probably not to all of our mature liking. Um, if if another if one kid is critical of another kid, and even if it is tearing them down, is that necessarily bullying if it happens once or twice? Or can we just chalk it up to, you know what, sometimes kids say things that are really stupid? I think that if one kid starts saying something mean to another kid and he sees that it hurts them, and he wants to hurt him. Mm. And so then he continues to repeatedly make that comment, then yes, that's then verbal bullying. But if he makes a comment that's kind of offhand and not super nice, well, then it's a comment that wasn't super nice one day. Are we, have we done a good job preparing our kids for that kind of stuff? Nobody's preparing their kids for bullying. I'm not suggesting that, but you're going to hear some things sometimes that aren't all that nice or that may be a little bit mean. Have we as parents done a good job preparing our kids to deal with that? You know, I think 
uh, we're all trying super hard to do the best that we can. And um, I, I think it all depends on how we choose to deal with that. You know, people are harsh and people are mean. And um, sometimes I'll hear parents like bolster their child and say the opposite of, of what's been said. When in fact, I think sometimes we just need to be honest with our kid and say, well, you know, maybe they were having a hard time today and that wasn't very nice and it it was hurtful. And what can you do if it happens again? So to be honest, I don't know in the parenting world if we're getting our kids to handle things like that appropriately. I think that we're not always teaching our kids to handle conflict appropriately because I'm not Mm. sure us adults are doing a great job of that right now either. Well, we only have a minute or so left, but that takes me to the other question because we are in a world that is supposed to be enlightened. We're supposed to have evolved as people into better individuals. We're nicer and more tolerant and all the rest of that stuff. It would have seemed to me that this kind of thing, as I said off the top, should have faded away. Why does it not go away? Because as you say, it seems like it's going the other direction. Well, I think that, that we're all human and we're doing the best that we can. And Kids are kids, and when they're first born, they don't know how to get power. And so, sure, maybe some of the adults are more enlightened, but that doesn't mean that our 5-year-olds and our 12-year-olds and our 15-year-olds are there. They're on the path to getting there. And so I think probably the key, honestly, what I see is a, a mistake that we're doing is we're not teaching how to handle conflict in an assertive and strong way. And if we could start doing that, that seems to be the missing piece to me that would decrease bullying in our society. Uh, listen, it, it is a fascinating topic. And I would argue or I would suggest that if you are someone whose kid or grandkid or even yourself is dealing with this, fascinating is probably not the word that comes to mind. Painful maybe more like it. Uh, Kathleen Hilchey, H-I-L-C-H-E-Y dot com is the website. KathleenHilchey.com. The information is there for the... Uh, seminar that you're doing in Dundas on May the 9th. If someone is interested, they can go there. They can learn all about it. Kathleen, really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this today. Thanks so much, Scott. Uh, again, Kathleen, just like it sounds, Hilchey, H-I-L-C-H-E-Y.com. If you've got a kid or a grandkid or someone else who is needing help with this, there's your opportunity. Check it out. Get the help. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Every once in a while, a game show on TV grabs our attention. In the 90s, it was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire with Regis Philbin. Is that your final answer? Remember that one? And then back in 2000, it was Survivor. Everybody was talking about who was voted off the island. And then in 2004, it was Ken Jennings. Everybody was watching Jeopardy. Went on his 74-game, I think, consecutive win streak. Well, now we've got a guy named James Holzhauer. And in just 13 games on Jeopardy, he has already won $942,738. Basically, he's broken the game completely. He's obliterated all the expectations and made everyone who goes on with him, frankly, probably wish they had chosen any other time to be a Jeopardy contestant. So how is he doing it and how hard is it to do what he's doing? Well, the people who can answer this for us, there's two of them. Well, there's more than two, but there's two that we've reached out to. Uh, they are both local folks. You would probably know both of them. And they both have appeared on Jeopardy. One is Bridget Kerr, and one is Pete Diakowski. Folks, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. 
No problem. Uh, Bridget, are you, uh, now both of you were on roughly around the same time, so it's, and, and in recent years, so it hasn't been that long since you've been on. Are you, Bridget, when you see this guy and you see the numbers he's putting up, having been there in, maybe even behind the very same desk that he's at or the dais, are you amazed at what a guy like this is doing? Um, I haven't been watching, but from what I've been hearing, it's fantastic. It's, um, it feels right, though. I feel that there's such an opportunity to just to run with it if you know the answers, if you know how to bet properly, I'm really proud that someone's doing that. Well, Pete, let's start with this because there's a bunch of components, and this is what I really want to talk about because we can watch a guy who's really bright, and there are bright people out there, both of you are. I've tried the Jeopardy test to get on, not even close. It's really, I think getting on to the show is way harder than being on the show. You can disagree, but but there are components to this, and the first one, you have to know the answer to everything, but Pete, the first one is the buzzer. You have to be able to work the buzzer properly. Explain how the buzzer works, because it's not just pressing a button. Well, the indicator, the uh, the button that everyone rings in on, is locked out while Trebek's speaking, and you have to wait until he's done uh, stating the answer before you can ask the question. And there's a stagehand who activates the uh, the buzzer, buzzers. And if you beep in early, you're actually locked out once the stagehands activate them for a very, very brief instant, but it's enough to be a disadvantage. So you've got to be very on your mark and get in right as Trebek's done speaking, and hopefully you've uh, timed it up just as the stagehands activating them, and you're the one who gets to ask the question. So there's a rhythm to it as well. There's a there, there's really a timing thing about when you can buzz in. Yeah, you've yeah. got to have... Oh, I'll, I'll let you answer this, Bridget. Oh, I was just thinking, um, yes, absolutely a rhythm, and then your brain has to catch up. Sometimes you uh, you buzz in before you absolutely know the answer. Uh Luckily, mine caught up a fair bit, but yeah, there's absolutely a rhythm to it. Well, because that's one of the things I was thinking is if I'm if I'm there and I'm trying to work on this buzzer and I'm trying to make sure I get the rhythm down, I may be so concentrating on just getting the buzzer to work that I actually get in before I even realize that I don't know the answer to that particular question. Well, when you watch, you can see some people who are still working, and sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But it's necessary. If you want to have a chance at winning, you've got to be in there able to answer the questions, especially on the categories at which you're strong. And James just happens to be strong at just about everything. Bridget, do you listen to the question only, or do you, when you're there, do you listen and also try to read the board? Can you even see the board from where you're standing, or is it only an audible thing for the contestants? No, the board that you see on TV is the exact same board that you see when you're on the set. So you're staring right at it as the question is being asked. I tended to read a bit um, of it, uh, so to sort of be able to formulate before Alex was done. You have it right in front of you, very, very big. So um, for me, I did I did read a little bit before the question was answered. Pete, were you going were you going with listening, or were you also reading it? I was reading it, but you've got to have your ears on because you've got to have the. Uh have the awareness to, to buzz in. So it's a very interesting uh, split of focus. But you see the best people uh, don't have any trouble with it. Do you, Pete, did you have any kind of strat? I mean, I don't know. Is there a strategy to this or is it just clicking as fast as you can? Is, do you try to formulate a strategy before you arrive? Well, I try to pre-read the, the question. I think that's what everyone, that's what everybody does. You try to pre-read the question and have the, 
or sorry, pre-read the answer yeah. and have the question lined up uh, for uh, you know for uh, ready uh, <clears throat> recollection when Trebek is done speaking. Is that the same with you, Bridget? Like, do you go in with a strategy, or did you just show up and say, oh, "I'm just going to go with it and figure it out on the fly"? I uh, did not go in with a strategy, but I have found out there are lots of strategies to figuring out how to bet at Final Jeopardy and looking at. I did try to figure out um, sort of the rate at which different types of questions were asked, and I knew when our show was going to be on, and generally the Final Jeopardy um, answer was related to the time period in which your show would be on, Hmm. but I didn't quite dig enough for that one. It has been suggested, and I was reading this story about the, this contestant, as I say, he's just, he's killing everybody. I, as you guys went on there, you didn't have to run into Ken Jennings or someone. I would think that if I was a contestant who's worked as hard as everyone has to get this opportunity and you show up and that guy is standing there, it's like, come on, give me a break. But uh, it's been suggested one of his amazing strategies for this that no one else has really thought about is to go after the big numbers and the presumably harder questions early before his contestants, his opponents, get comfortable. He's been there for a while now. They are new at this. They're trying to get their feet under them with the lights on and everything else. How difficult, Bridget, is it to get comfortable at the beginning of that show, to get comfortable and really sort of take a breath and be into the game? Well, the nice thing is, before you start, you get to practice without filming. The the crew there will get you up on the dais, practice with the uh, with the buzzer, sort of get used to being there. But the adrenaline kicks in. So I barely remember the entire show. I watched it when it was on the air, and I was like, oh, I answered that question. <laughs> so the amount of adrenaline just coursing through you is amazing. So, so Pete, it, it, probably a lot easier to get uncomfortable than to get comfortable? Oh, yeah. Well, for everyone but the returning champ, it's your first time up. But they do give you that opportunity to warm up to get used to the uh, the format. Everyone has a chance uh, at the start of the day. They film five episodes a day. So they film back-to-back days, Monday and Tuesday, five episodes each day. So they've done filming for two weeks and two days, which makes a repeat champion like James that much more uh, impressive because of the stamina. He's been winning back-to-back-to-back games uh, for now over uh, uh, several days of filming straight. When I came on, actually, the, uh, the returning champ that day was Julia Collins, uh, one of the uh, winningest contestants ever. She had oh. a 20-game winning streak, and I thought, oh, boy, well, this is a wasted trip. But she, <laughs> she lost on that, uh, the first filming of the day, and so then I thought, oh, with her out of the way, it's, it's going to be smooth sailing, which was you know, famous last words. <laughs> Did, now, when you're waiting to go on, are you sitting in the crowd or are you back in a green room somewhere? In other words, are you being able to see what is happening with the show before and what the returning champion might or might not have done? Yeah, yeah, yeah I have you in the crowd watching. So you have a chance to either feel really confident that they're not that smart, Bridget, or to be completely psyched out because they are that smart. It's a, it's a waiting game. It's, it's nerve-wracking. For me, it was nerve-wracking to be in the audience and to watch it. It was exciting, but um, the nerves were pretty high that day. Do you know, Bridget, when you're sitting there, do you know that you're up next? Do you know your game is next? Or after the game, do they then say, oh, and Bridget Curry, you're up next, along with Pete Diakowski? Uh I don't remember. I think they um, they call you out, I think, game by game, because I was, 
I wanted to go after lunch, so I would get to go out to lunch with everyone, and I got called before lunch. So that was a bit of a surprise. <laughs> do you remember, Pete, do you remember if you got much warning or just that right before? No, it's right before. So they, aside from the returning chat, the other two people are drawn at random, or, or so we're told, and you're just not informed until, uh, until just beforehand, and then you get to go into the green room, uh, get yourself really nervous, and then you go out and... Do the taping. So I was in the same scenario. I was right before lunch, so uh, I also did not join everyone else for lunch afterwards. So Bridget, are there things that you get on the stage and you've got this guy like this this competitor right now who is just obliterating people? And I mean, he's just running away. I think one hundred and thirty-one thousand or something like that was his highest one-day total. Was the all-time greatest total. So when when you're now. Let's say you were on there with him. You're one of the contestants. Are there things around within your line of vision that serve as a reminder of how badly you're being beaten? Is, oh. is, the, is the scoreboard right in front of you so you are being reminded with every question, oh man, I'm $80,000 behind this guy already? I have no idea. I like. I don't know if I've blocked out that memory, but I cannot remember. I feel like during the breaks, he lets you know where they where you were, especially before Final Jeopardy, because you have an opportunity to try to do math to figure out what your best bet is, which is not my strong suit. So you do know before you go into Final Jeopardy where you're sitting and what you have to place your bet before the question's up. So you definitely know if you're above or below sort of uh, the, the top the top person. Pete, do you remember seeing the scores anywhere, or was it just like that? Was it a, a just sort of everything was only during the breaks? I wasn't paying attention to that at all during the uh, during the game itself. But, yeah, during the breaks in between, you sort of take stocks here and really that. Um, I was uh, the low stack going into double jeopardy, so I was very much aware of that because it let me pick first, and I was able to get back into some good uh, – Good categories and regain some lost ground, but uh, the impressive thing with uh, with James is that he is swinging for the fences every single time he gets a yeah. double, and that's been his his secret. Well, it's been his secret. I'm sure it's very intimidating. You're you're an athlete. You've played for a long time. The thought that came to mind, it's it may not be a perfect example, but you'll probably remember back in the day when Mike Tyson was at his best. He would just walk into the ring with his black shorts and his black boots and his gloves on, no robe, no nothing, and look like he was ready to kill you. And half the time he'd won the fight before he even started because he'd psyched out his opponents. And I got to think that that psych out is happening with the guys that this new contestant is facing. Well, if you look at his background, I mean, he's a professional sports gambler, and he's run the numbers, and he's realized that your best opportunity is getting big, and he's good enough to do it uh, reliably, but it's still it's an all-or-nothing bet every single time. And it's, it's intimidating, someone with that level of confidence, I'm sure people... Uh, now, it's not got to the point, though, where I believe these have all been taped before his first episode is aired, you've got to have a really long streak before you have people who've already watched you on TV now going up against you. So I believe Ken Jennings may have entered that territory when he was on his 70, I think 74 game run. But for this guy, he's an unknown uh, to the people coming in to tape uh, against him. But they do tell you He's a returning champion. He's won this many times because he signed a non-disclosure agreement. Mm. So when you hear that, you take a big gulp. 
Well, and Bridget, I got to think that if you were standing up there beside him and he's playing the way he is with these massive bets every time, double down, double or nothing, every, every single time, daily, uh, true daily double, that's going to affect you. If you're one of the other opponents and suddenly you're falling way behind, that's going to probably affect how you're going to play your game because you got to try and keep up with them. Yeah, you're... The- pit of your stomach just drops out. How do you keep up with someone who knows to go for the big money first so you can increase your daily, when you uh, make your bet for the daily double, it's a bigger amount? Like, I don't I don't know. Um, I would imagine you start to lose your train of thought. Well, and, and now uh, one other thing I was asking, I mean, if, if there are reminders, at any point when you were on the show, do you recall if the thought came in mind about, oh man, my family and friends are going to be watching this. I can't make a giant fool of myself. No, I'm a giant ham, so I loved being on and being in front of the camera, but it felt like a sprint, like there was no stopping. The second it started, you just kept going until the end. So I didn't find a lot of time to sort of be reflective, just sort of sprint it right to the end, and suddenly it was done. So again, watching myself on TV, TV, I'm like, oh, I did get that answer. I didn't realize that was one of the questions. But Pete, you are a guy who, I mean, you've been in the public eye. People know who you are more than Bridget, to be fair. Uh, and I mean, you've been on Canada's smartest person. When you, if you go on there and you completely wet the bed, it had to have crossed your mind to say, oh man, I don't want to look like a giant goofball for all the people around the CFL and all my teammates and everyone else. You know, it's funny because in my, uh, at the time, my day job, I had to wear spandex pants in front of, you know, <laughs> 25,000 people in the stadium. And, you know, I'd never thought of it that TV. way. <laughs> but I was, uh, for myself, remarkably self-conscious, and it may have been uh, early on my, my undoing. I, I had a good uh, good double jeopardy around, but it wasn't, uh, wasn't quite enough to overcome those early jitters, and it was... Uh, it was a little bit unlike me, out of character, but it's a very unique experience. And when, you know, one of your uh, heroes, Alex Trebek, is right there in front of you and you're under the bright lights of uh, Hollywood, it can be a little daunting. Well, it the whole thing, quite honestly, seems very intimidating because you are, unlike a lot of the game shows, Bridget, where they give you... You know, some of the questions are frankly pretty darn easy. And even if you get it wrong, it's, you know, so be it. You really have an opportunity to look like a buffoon on this show. And uh, what's his name? Um, Wolf Blitzer from CNN. Prime example when they had a celebrity Jeopardy and like looked like a moron. He's not a moron, but this game can do that to you. Absolutely. I just wanted to not come in last. I came in second, which was great. And I wanted to look good on TV. I had seen a lot of people not wear appropriate foundation garments, and I wanted to make sure I looked good when I was on the screen. So that was the criteria. Pete, were you wearing your proper foundation garments while you were on? I had a, I was just coming off of my uh, big knee surgery. So I was wearing a giant cage brace on my leg. So all my, uh, my clothes were relatively Definitely baggy, and I had my uh, my cane hidden behind the podium, so I wasn't uh, dressed quite as sharp as I like. I think I looked all right. Just for both of you, before we go here, because I mean it's it's really interesting that, to to see this. Had you both of you, and Bridget, I'll go to you first. If you were going back today, and you found out that you were going up against someone like this, who was just uh, as I say, obliterating everyone else in the show. Would it have freaked you out right from the very beginning? Would it have changed right from the start what you were doing? Or would you just say, oh, you know what, I'm still going to go out there and just have fun? I think my strategy would have changed a little bit. There's a lot 
there's a big online community of people who have been on Jeopardy before, and they have a lot of good ideas on how to play it strategically. And I just sort of lived on Wikipedia for a month before I went on. But I would take more time to think about the strategies that worked in the past and how to like bet appropriately rather than rather than winging it like I did. Pete, would it have affected you if the person that you did have someone who had done very well? Well, no, she had just gone before you got on there. But would it have affected you if you'd gone on there and the guy was just destroying everyone? No, I would actually prefer that I, because then there's no there's no shame in losing to somebody who's won, uh, you know, 15 times in a row. I, I'd have welcomed that because then there's uh, there's no downside. Less pressure, in my opinion. It is, uh, it is one of those games that I think many of us think we could do, many of us would like to do, until we actually get there and then go, oh, crap, why am I doing this? Um, I don't know if either of you have that, or if you, just before I go, Bridget, do you look at this as a good memory, or do you look at this as one that you say, ah, oh, I could have done without this? Oh, no, I could not have done without it. I wish I had won, but it was fantastic. And I encourage anyone who likes trivia at all to do the online test and see how it goes. I got to audition with Pete Bagkowski, so that was pretty fantastic. <laughs> you guys auditioned together. We were in Toronto at the same time. We were the same one, yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Now, Pete, what about you? I mean, I know you and I have talked about this before, but is this something that you say in retrospect you could have done without, or are you really glad you did it regardless of the outcome? Oh, no, it was terrific. There was one more, uh, one more adventure along the way, and a great story. It would have been nice to have, uh, have won a couple of times, or even once. But it was, you know, it was tremendous, and I got to take a cab right afterwards to In-N-Out Burger, which I'd never had before. So I had two first <laughs> in one day. Well, that makes so, it a good day. Yeah, yeah so I, I would recommend anybody uh, take the test, and you never know what's going to happen when you get on there. A little easier to play at home on the couch? Absolutely. Oh, you know what? That's some advice, too. Play standing up. When you're playing at home, play standing up. Act like you're there. All right. You know what? We'll try it. We'll try it. I don't anticipate I'll ever be there. And if I do, I'm going to take you down with me as my manager, one of you, just to, you know, to, to guide me through and to, to sort of serve as a, as a life coach for the, for the Jeopardy episode. But uh, I'll Bridget, the expenses after paying me an In-N-Out burger. Uh, I can do that. I don't, and I don't know what Bridget's expenses are. I don't know what restaurant I have to pay her in, but we'll figure it out. Uh, Bridget Kerr, Pete Diakowski, two former, well, local Hamiltonians, but former Jeopardy contestants. If you're watching Jeopardy, and don't leave the show now. I mean, that's just another reason I'm sending people away again. I'm doing a bad job on radio here. But if you're watching some other day and this guy is on, well, now you've heard it. Uh, Pete, Bridget, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me on. That is... Uh, It'll be a lot of fun. I, I've been, I, I've told you this before, if you're a regular listener, I've been on a TV game show before. Not one that is in the upper crust category like Jeopardy. I was on Bumper Stumpers. It was kind of a lower end, lower end <laughs> kind of show. Twice, in fact. I was on twice because the first time the judge dinged the right answer for our opponents when they didn't give the right answer. And they had told us if there's some controversy or whatever else, don't make a fuss on the air. Just tell us quietly after. And so afterwards I said, you dinged them and that was not the right answer. And they said, you're correct. So we came back and we got obliterated a second time. (laughs) I should have just taken my lumps and gone home the first time. Oh, well, never on Jeopardy though. We'll see. If any of you listening right now Make it through to Jeopardy, ever. 
Call me. Alert me. We'll have you on here to talk about it. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.